Thank you, Andrew. Um, good afternoon. My name is Will and I'm a first year student studying, studying political science and business law. Um, this afternoon's Bible reading comes from Revelation chapter 13. Um, so, yeah. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had, fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to excuse and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those names have not... All those names who have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, hear ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from the heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth it ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Six, six, six. I don't think there are any other three numbers that I can think of that have caused more anxiety and fear in the history of the world. Uh, they have been at the root of endless conspiracy theories, countless speculations into the end of human history. Um, you go to large hotels, you'll notice that the room 666 doesn't exist. 
People have changed highway numbers, flight numbers. Ronald Reagan changed the number of his street when he moved out of the White House. Um, And even if you've never read a Bible, you will know that these numbers uh, signify something evil. It has become such a superstition in the Western world that whenever it turns up, it rattles us to the point where they actually have a word for it. Here's the word. It's hexacosioi, hexaconta, hexaphobia. Uh, the fear of 666. And the reason for it is in Revelation 13 and 14. In chapter 13, John has a vision of a great beast, as you would have seen in the reading that Will just brought us, rising up from the sea, who will stand in opposition to Christ and rule the world. And as part of his reign, he will stamp people with a mark, the mark of the beast, which we see in verse 17 of today's chapter is the name of the beast or the number of his name, which we're then told in verse 18 is 666. And Revelation makes it very clear that those who receive the mark will receive the judgment of God and the fury of his wrath. It's in chapter 14. We'll see that next week. And so understandably, I think people are pretty fearful And they're fearfully preoccupied with the beast, who it is, and his mark, and whether or not they have it. Uh, And I don't think this is a small anxiety, because Christians across the world live in fear of the emergence of this beast and the implications for their salvation. Uh, One Christian woman expressed it like this on Reddit, so we know it's true. (laughs) I was just wondering if anyone else had these feelings about the mark. Sometimes I panic and wonder if I'm already marked or if smartphones are the mark. I was wondering uh, others' thoughts about it. My husband is not a Christian, so he usually tells me to stop worrying about it. (laughs) Notice what the fear is. The fear is that we might somehow be marked without our consent or knowledge, and that pushes us into an anxiety which in turn drives a hypervigilance to identify the beast and its mark. And so what happens? Well, we end up playing a game that I like to call pin the tail on the beast. And what we do is we kind of blindly reach into history and we try and pinpoint who's intent on world domination. And so it won't surprise you that rulers such as Nero, Muhammad, Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, Donald Trump have all been identified as the beast. Now, the problem with all of this is that Revelation was written to the first century uh, Christians, and, and they had the expectation that they would understand what was written. And instead of generating fear and anxiety, what the letter to the Re- uh, Revelation to the churches in Asia was meant to do was actually give them confidence, not give them greater fear. And, and so what we're going to try and do this morning or this afternoon is we're going to try and take that blindfold off and get a bit more clarity on just what it is this chapter is saying And hopefully it'll cure us of our hexacosio, hexaconta, hexaphobia. So first of all, let's have a look at the first beast. Uh, Let's have a look uh, from verse 1 in our passage. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, and with ten crowns on its horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Okay, we've got the description. I think there are two passages that shed light on who the beast is. And the first one is in the previous chapter of Revelation in chapter 12. 
Uh, because in that chapter, Satan, the great accuser, is described as a dragon. And we see, if you flick back in your Bibles in chapter 12, verse 3, that that dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its heads. I want you to notice the similarity with the first beast. It's not exactly the same, but what it shares is the family resemblance. Uh, And understanding the connection between Satan, the dragon, and the beast is critical because we need to understand that the beast, the first beast, is Satan's agent in the world. Uh, At the end of chapter 12, what we see, Satan, he's thrown down from heaven and he determines to wage war against all of those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we see him standing on the edge of the sea and he raises up a beast from the chaotic depths who will be his agent in the world to wage his war. So that's the first passage and the first kind of uh, kind of stake in the ground that we need to understand when we come to the beast. The second passage uh, that helps us identify the beast is back in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel also sees a vision. He sees a sea. But instead of one beast coming up out of the water, he sees four. So I'm going to skim read through. It'll be up on the screen here for you. Uh, we're just trying to get the imagery into our heads here. Uh, this is from verse 2. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four, the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. There before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. Verse 6, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And then verse 7, after that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. Now, a little bit later on in chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel has his dream explained to him and we're told in verse 17 that those four great beasts are four kings or kingdoms that will rise from the earth. Uh, And they're identified for us, at least the first three, Babylon, Medes, Persia, Greece, and then we assume that the fourth beast is Rome. Uh, But what I want you to notice is the descriptions in Daniel and how they map onto the description in Revelation. Because the beast that we see in Revelation 13 is an amalgamation of all four of those beasts. And that helps rule out some possibilities for us. First of all, what it tells us is the beast is not a person. And we know that because the beast imagery in Daniel is talking about kingdoms. Okay. Uh, Second, it tells us that the beast is not a particular empire or a particular kingdom. Now, some people, uh, I think with some kind of merit, think that that kind of amalgamation suggests that this is one totalitarian world order, worse than all of the other beasts put together. And I think that's a tempting proposition. But back in our passage in Revelation 13, have a look at verse 5. How long does the beast rule for? It's 42 months, right? And if you've been regular at public meeting, one of the things you'll know is that 42 months has been throughout the book of Revelation a symbolic number that represents the time between Jesus' first coming, where he died, rose and ascended to heaven, and his second coming when he returns to judge at the end of history. And what we see here is that this first beast is ruling over all of that time. And one quick look at human history will tell us that this cannot be then one kingdom that has been there the whole time. 
there is no totalitarian regime that will rise up in the future. What it's suggesting is that this beast is the symbolic representation of rebellious human government at all times and at all places who will rule in opposition to Christ, in opposition to Jesus, God's chosen king. And I think you see this uh, in the, the indication there of the fatal wound. Now, what we see here is a kind of a, a Christ copycat, a Christ counterfeit. Here is the beast in opposition to the right rule of Christ, and he has something that makes him look like Christ. And you see this all throughout. He, he has horns like Jesus does in Revelation 5. Uh, people gather around him. He has authority over all the nations. He has a fatal wound. Uh, and so what we're seeing here is something, a, a, a symbolic representation of the very thing that is in opposition to the rule of Jesus. This is the peoples of the world in all of their earthly political manifestations. Greece, Rome, Stalin's Russia, North Korea, China, the US. Dictatorships and democracies, all of them under the control and influence of Satan, setting themselves up in the world in such a way as to deny the rule of Christ and oppress his people. For that is what the second, the first beast does. I want you to have a look at the dynamic that the passage gives us in terms of what this beast does. Have a look at verse 2. Satan gives the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. And what does he do with the authority? Well, if you skim down to verse 5, we see that the beast is given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and it opens its mouth in verse 6 to blaspheme God to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And then it uses its power in verse 7 to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It's given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. And the picture that builds is that as this beast wages war against the people of Christ, the world will turn to the beast and look on and say in verse 4, who was like this beast and who could possibly wage war against it? And they will marvel at the beast's power. And in verse 8, they will worship the beast. And so when we step back and we have a look at this picture, what are we seeing? Well, what we are seeing is Satan imbuing the beast with his power and his authority for the purpose of blaspheming the name of God and drawing away worship from Jesus to the beast. Satan is consciously making a Christ counterfeit so that people will not honour God as he deserves and so be saved. Instead, because he knows his time is short, he wants to take down as many people in the world as he can before Jesus returns and takes him down. And so what this suggests to us is that we don't need to sit in anxiety and fear and speculation trying to work out when the beast is coming because the scary and sad news is the beast is already here. In some senses, then, the identification with Rome or Napoleon's regime or with Hitler or even with Donald Trump is not necessarily wrong. All of these regimes in some way blasphemed the name of Christ and drew worship away from Christ to the state. But insofar as people try to restrict the identity of the beast to that one particular government in that one particular point in history, then they've under misunderstood the beast of Revelation 13. Because what it is, is it's a satanic phenomenon of human government at all times and in all ages. And so whether you're in Australia or the US or Nigeria or North Korea, you are in some sense living in a world under the influence of Satan and his earthly servants. And they will, to varying degrees of extremeness, depending on where you are in the world, they will blaspheme the name of God. 
They will persecute Christians and they will call people away from the true worship of God to the worship of all sorts of other things. Now, having understood that, it puts us in a position to respond rightly as believers, which is what John calls us to do there in verses 9 and 10. He says this, quite similar to Jesus, whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So what does it look like to live as a Christian in a world ruled by the beast? Well, it is to patiently endure and remain faithful to the true king. And I just want to say, I think this is quite important for us to understand at the CU, given that there's such a high proportion of politically active students in the CU. Um, Our right impulse is that we want to reform the political system, right? We want to get in there and we want to change things. You know, maybe grassroots movement, maybe we run for office, whatever it is. And that's actually one of the great blessings of democracy in that we can change things for the better. But don't, don't miss the implication there of verse 10. If anyone has to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. And if anyone is to be killed by the sword, with the sword they will be killed. And so there's an acknowledgement here, I think, of a, a certain fatalism. Uh, that Christians are destined to be persecuted and those that are destined to be persecuted in certain ways will be persecuted in those ways. And the point here is that we can't escape those things. We shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that we can somehow get out of it. Um, This is actually an established feature of apocalyptic prophecy, which is the genre that we're kind of talking about here in Revelation 13. It divides history into two ages, the current evil age And then the future age of blessing. You see this in the book of Daniel as well. And the current evil age, the one in which we live at the moment, is beyond redemption. It is beyond hope. The only way the system can change is if somebody from the outside, hint, hint, Jesus, comes in and changes it. Those who are inside the machine might be able to affect change on a local level, but they cannot change the machine in such a way that it is renewed. And that helps us, I think, put into perspective the value of social action and our attempts to change the political and social structures to try and bring about God's purposes in the world. It's not as though those things are bad things. In fact, they're good things. They're expressions of love for our neighbour and we must do them. But we can't delude ourselves into thinking that that's the thing that will change the system. The present evil age will always be under the authority of the beast. And the measures that we try and take to minimise or remove or or avoid persecution will all be destined to fail. And so what we are called to do is patiently endure, to be faithful in the midst of it, because that is how the Christian triumphs. If you flip back in your Bibles to chapter 12, verse 11, we see it. We triumph uh, over Satan, not by taking up political weapons, but by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony as we preach the gospel, call the nations to account, as people hear that message of salvation, as we suffer for it, as people become Christians. That's how we affect God's purposes in the world. That's the first beast. We're only halfway there. The second beast, just when you think things couldn't get crazier, uh, have a look at verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. 
And who is this second beast? We're kind of scant on the description here. We're kind of really only told two things, almost nothing about its appearance. It has two horns like a lamb, which again is a parody of Jesus, the Lamb of God, which we see in Revelation 5. Uh, Jesus has five more horns than this lamb, which says something about Jesus being better, I suppose. Um, But the other thing that we're told is that he speaks like a dragon. So again, we see the family resemblance. This beast, too, is an agent of Satan. And if you skim your eyes down the, the, the page from verse 11, you'll see that the things that the beast does are decidedly religious in character now rather than political. It does signs. It sets up an image. Um, elsewhere in Revelation, if you're note-taking, Revelation 16.13, Revelation 19.20, uh, Revelation 20.10. Uh, in, in those places in Revelation a little bit later on, the second beast is referred to as the false prophet. And so just as the first beast represents human government in the last days, the second beast represents human religion. Uh, That's who it is. In terms of what it does, well, we see it in verse 12. Uh, We're told there that it exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made all the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. That's its MO. That's the thing that it's on about. And it does it in two main ways. Uh, The first is through deception, through signs. And the second is through religious coercion. We're going to do each one in turn. First of all, what does the beast do? Well, the beast deceives the world through signs. And we see this in verse 13. He performs great signs. Um, What does he do? Uh, He even causes fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Now, where have we seen that kind of miraculous sign before? Well, if you know your Bibles, this is the ministry of the prophet Elijah. On Mount Carmel, he does kind of like a a sacrifice off with the prophets of Baal. And he calls down fire from heaven and burns up the offering and then puts the prophets of Baal to the sword. And in that incident, what that sign was signifying is that God was the true God and the one that reigned. But I want you to notice here, and this is the trippy thing, the signs here are satanic in origin. And this is a bit of a lesson for us. Miraculous signs are not necessarily a proof that the thing that we are seeing is of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11 warns us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light and so therefore it should come as no surprise that his servants do as well. Uh, We even have this from the lips of Jesus. This is in Matthew 24, 24, so an easy verse to remember. What does he say? He says that in the last days, false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And so the measure of Christian truth, then, cannot be miracles. We have to always keep coming back to the fact that the measure of Christian truth is the scriptures, the ones that explain the miracles, because the miracles by themselves are not persuasive and they don't give us enough information to respond to them rightly. And if we have this assumption that all things miraculous must be of God, then what happens is we become easy prey to the second beast and its deceptions. That's the first thing. He deceives through signs. But that's not all. He does a second thing as well. He doesn't just deceive and cause people to worship the beast. He also uses religious coercion. 
Uh, and we see this in the worship of the image of the beast in verses 14 and 15. Uh, but where I want to go is a bit later on in verse 16, because this is where we see the mark of the beast. This is the thing you've all been waiting for. Get a load of verse 16. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slaves, <laughs> nobody escapes here, uh, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So the million dollar question, what exactly is the mark of the beast? Well, I think people normally go one of two ways in trying to answer this question. First of all, the first group of people, they tend to think that the mark of the beast is a physical mark that is connected to a particular person in history. Uh, And the reason that they give for that is in verse 18. They say that, well, look, it says there that 666 is the number of a man. And so what we need to do is we need to work out who that person is, because once we work out that person, we can work out the mark and we can avoid it. Uh, And what they do to determine that is they use a numerical system called gematria. So here's an example of it up on the the screen. This is Hebrew Hebrew gematria. And the thing to understand is that in the ancient world, uh, Hebrew, Greek, the language, they didn't have numbers. They weren't as advanced as we were. Uh, And so what they did is they had to kind of get around it somehow. And so what they did is they used letters as shorthand. So in English, A is 1, B is 2, C is 3. You would have done that in school in your little puzzle books. Uh, But this is next level. Because what they do is they take the... the, the, um, I always get confused. It's letters and numbers. It's the letters. They take the letters of the name... And they get the equivalent numbers of that name and then they sum it up. And and whatever that sum is, that's that person's number. And so what we need to do is we need to keep adding up the numbers of names until we find somebody with 666 and bam, we know it's the beast. Now, here's the problem with that. With a little bit of creativity, you can make anything sum to 666. Uh, One of the popular suggestions was Emperor Nero. He was actually likely just a bit before the letter was written to Revelation. Uh, The people living then were probably under the Emperor Domitian. Uh, But Emperor Nero, he persecuted Christians. He was the ruler of the known world. And here's the thing. If you took his name and just one of his many titles, Caesar, and you took it in Greek and then you transliterated it into Hebrew and then you did some shady business with the vowels, bam. You get 666. And there he is. There's the beast. And of course, um, because the Roman coins had the title uh, Nero Caesar on it, then that must be the mark of the beast. And that makes sense because without them, you can't buy food. And so we need to avoid what's going on here. Uh, But just to show you how absurd this sort of thinking is, I've gone away in my own discretionary time and I have no regrets. (laughs) And I made my own mark of the beast calculator. If you transliterate President Jeremy (laughs) into Hebrew with a variant Hebrew spelling, look at what you get. (laughs) 666. All I'm saying is just think twice before he starts trying to sell you a T-shirt, okay? (laughs) Now, you see the problem with this sort of thinking, right? It's literal and it's time-bound and it's arbitrary. And as we've already seen, it's not how Revelation is describing the activity of the beast. Uh, In more recent times, people have gotten worried about barcodes, about the radio frequency ID chips in credit cards, even the coronavirus vaccine. 
Uh, and the problem with all of these is that none of them relate to the original audience and they would have been sensible to them. And they don't really grapple with the fact that the beast is across the whole of the last days, not just a part of it. And, and what that means is it pushes us away from a physical understanding of the mark to thinking about the mark of the beast symbolically. Uh, it's not the number of a man, it's the number of man, the number of humanity. Uh, seven is the perfect number in the Bible. It's the number of God. Well, six, well, if you're a six out of seven, you know, nine out of ten, well, you kind of fail to make the grade. Uh, you're not really the top. You, there's something missing. It's, it's an imperfect number. And so number six is the number of mankind in rebellion against God. Now, why are there six of them? There's a bunch of reasons, but I think one of them is just for emphasis. And just so that you know, this isn't actually so strange. If you've grown up in Chinese culture, you'll see this a lot. Uh, at the bottom of wedding invitations, the good luck symbol is stamped twice. Uh, you might have seen around Perth, you guys and your ridiculous personalised number plates, the triple eight pop up all over the place. Uh, and that's the good luck symbol. Uh, that's the, tr- the symbol of wealth in, in China. Uh, and so they just kind of go three, uh, three of them, eight, eight, eight. This is wealth upon wealth upon wealth. Uh, and I think that's what's going on here. The, the imperfect number of man laid out three times to emphasise the fact that what we're dealing with here when we see the two beasts is that this is not right. This is not like God who was represented by seven. And I think having said all of that, uh, as we keep reading through the scriptures, this understanding, this symbolic understanding of the mark is confirmed with us. Uh, because if we keep going to chapter 14, verse 1, which is the very next verse from 666, what do we see? Then I looked, this is John seeing another vision, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. There's your million-dollar question for next week. We'll be in this lecture theatre, so come back then. He sees 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we know from Revelation chapter 7 that that is a symbolic representation. It's, it's, It's meant to express these are the people who follow the Lord Jesus. And the two marks are in parallel. And so if one is symbolic and the other is literal, it doesn't really make sense, does it? Um, And so the mark of the beast, we conclude, is not something physically that you can kind of accidentally get like the woman in Reddit was concerned about. It's merely a symbolic way of describing those who worship the beast or those who worship Christ. So how does this play out in history? Well, it's really quite simple. If you're a Christian... It's not that you'll be marked with a physical mark, but you will be coerced, particularly economically, uh, because you're a Christian. People will pressure you to swap your mark, as it were. Uh, And you see this in Muslim-majority countries, in Hindu-majority countries. Um, We were in our public, uh, uh, the CU prayer meeting this morning, uh, and we were praying for Georgia, which is predominantly orthodox, and they're persecuting the Christians as well. So go figure, right? And so what we see unfolding in all of the world is that Christians are being withheld from jobs. They can't buy food. Um, I got this in the mail a couple of weeks ago. This is from Open Doors, which kind of tracks persecuted Christians. And it said this, For millions of persecuted Christians across Asia, choosing to follow Jesus often means choosing a life without access to essential resources. Education, water, medical supplies, sustainable incomes. That sound like the activity of the second beast? I think it does. Um, And it goes on to describe a man called Abdul who converted from Islam to Christianity. 
And his village, his Muslim village, denied him access to the freshwater wells because of his conversion. Now, he doesn't have enough money to buy pure water elsewhere, and so he and his entire family are now sick because they have been economically restricted because they bore the mark of Christ. All of this because he wouldn't allow himself to be deceived and coerced by the second beast to assume, as it were, the mark of the beast. And I think Abdul gives us an example of how we should therefore respond. In verse 18, John calls us to exercise wisdom, not to work out what the mark of the beast is so that we can avoid it, but because of the way the second beast works, he deceives And he coerces us to walk away from Christ. Now, for believers in the first century, this would have been a very obvious application because it meant for them to be aware of what was happening when the Roman Caesars claimed to be God and called people to worship them and claimed false signs and wonders and pointed to great victories to kind of prove their deity. And John would have been saying to these guys, be wise, have nothing to do with the emperor worship cult. Go back to World War II, Nazi Germany. What it meant was not being persuaded by the state-controlled churches uh, like the German Christian church that that was legit and okay and that the racism that they represented was fine. Instead, what it was a call to was to be thoughtful, to use your Bibles, work out whether or not what the national church stood for actually confirmed it as a church of Christ or as it was in reality a church of Satan. Um, We have the example of Bonhoeffer, that famous Christian man who saw through the deception, stepped away from that church because he was wise and he set himself against that which was in opposition to Christ and he died for it. But there was a man who was wise and endured, understood the beasts and responded. Well, what about today? Well, it's going to look different for us in different parts of the world. In communist China, some of you have family over there, it actually means seeing through the deception and the coercion of churches like the Three Self Patriotic Church. It's not spruken the gospel, it's spruken allegiance to the state. In North Korea, it means being wise to the deceptions of the personality cult of Kim Jong un. Uh, he is not a celebrated musical composer and artist. He could not ride the wildest horses at age six. You know, he, 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 all he is, is is a man, a man with delusions of grandeur seeking to draw people away from Christ, the true king. What about Australia? And I think this is the hard question because we don't live under a dictatorship. Skomer has too many problems in office to ever claim that he's God and pull that one off. Um, we don't have a national religion. Uh, and even if we did, it, it is not at this stage state controlled. So what does it look like for us to be wise? Where are we being deceived by the false prophet and taken away from the worship of Christ? Um, Well, I don't want to be too kind of confirmatory and say, well, the second beast is everywhere at every point in every society. But but I do want to say that even though we live in a secular society, that doesn't mean that there's a shortage of religious voices, does it? Um, Especially when we have the internet and social media, it really opens us up to the global community. uh, And it won't surprise you to know that there are many false prophets out there, both Christian and non-Christian, And all of them are vying for your eternal destiny. Some of them are obvious, but not all of them are, especially those of Christian origin. And so when you're on social media, you're skimming through your feed, you're reading the blog posts, you're listening to podcasts. Just know that not all Christian voices are the same. 
Many, many of them claim the name of Christ, but in reality, what they're teaching is just the dominant secular ideology dressed up in Christian clothing. And if we're not careful, what we will end up doing is compromising on our ethics around abortion, on sexuality and gender, uh, on the authority of the scripture, on the reality of the resurrection, on the kingship of Christ. And somehow, just somehow, if even possible, the elect will be deceived and we'll be tricked into thinking that we can both be progressive and Christian, which is to really be not Christian at all. And so that's why we gather as we do at Bible-believing churches here at PM, at MYC, hopefully in a couple of months, because we want to hear the trustworthy voice of God in his word, the word that makes us wise to the second beast's deceptions. So let's wrap this up. Uh, what I hope you can see by now is that the remedy for our hexacosioi, hexaconta, hexaphobia is not endlessly poring over history and conspiracy sites trying to pin the tail on the beast. The remedy is not even conquering the beasts, even when they're rightly understood as human government and human religion under the authority of Satan, because their authority has been given to them for the entirety of the last days and that will not change. No, the ultimate remedy is the triumph of Christ on the last day when he returns to judge and he does away with the beasts and Satan with the breath of his mouth. And until then, we are called to endure, to be wise and remain faithful to Christ. Let's pray that he helps us to do that now. Father, thank you so much that you grant us your word, the voice that we can trust. And it brings us to an accurate understanding of what is happening in our world today and prepares us and enables us to respond to it in a way that will protect our faith, will continue to give glory to Jesus and will ultimately help us be with him on the last day. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us to endure and pray that you'll help us uh, to be wise and not be deceived. And I ask that we will not be gripped by fear but instead by great confidence, knowing that Jesus is coming and he will do away with the beast in an instant. We thank you for that and we look forward to his coming. We ask that he comes now. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.